Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin here this week with the co-founder of RecordSetter.com, Dan Rollman. Thanks for being here, Dan. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So for those that aren't familiar with the project, what exactly is RecordSetter? Um, we call RecordSetter the new home of world records. So it's basically a digital platform that allows anybody anywhere to set any world record they want. So it's a much more open approach to world records than what you're probably used to. Uh, our core philosophy is that everybody can be the world's best at something. And it's kind of like YouTube. Like you can set a world record at home, upload it to our website, and post it for, for others to look at and challenge. And what is the criteria for a record? Yeah, so people say that we're the Wikipedia to Guinness's Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, if you want to set a brand new world record, it has to be quantifiable and breakable and you have to have sufficient media evidence but so if you want to set a world record for the you know largest collection of piggy banks on a couch i'm just making that up that world record does not yet exist uh, you just have to gather all the piggy banks put it on a couch shoot it on video and then you upload it and that's a quantifiable record uh it's breakable and uh you have the video on recordsetter.com what that process makes so much sense. I feel like you've already explained it sufficiently. Like that record probably exists by the time someone's heard this. So, what is the process like for Guinness? What do they do differently? Um, it's a little bit of a, of a mystery. Um, you know, their model is based around subjectively deciding what is and isn't worthy of being a, a Guinness record. So, if you want to set a Guinness record that doesn't exist, then you have to, you know, fill out a, a pretty lengthy application and send it off to them, and then wait for a period of time before they tell you whether or not uh, your your record is is worthy. Whereas we really just say, you know, we like to say that we're not judging people's records. We're just building a platform that allows you to post your world records for other people to challenge. And to the best of our abilities, we, we try and take a hands-off approach as long as you follow the, the basic guidelines. It does feel like what they're doing is a very old way of approaching it, whereas this is the new generation. I don't mean to just be selling it for you, but this is kind of the Thanks. new generation's way of setting records. How did this get started? Um, well, I always say it started when I was a 10-year-old kid and I got my first Guinness book. Uh, I've just been a world record geek my whole life, uh, fascinated with reading about other world records and also always had a deep dream to someday set a world record or world records myself. And Wait, I have two questions about that. Were there any world me. records that particularly inspired you that you remember thinking, wow, that's so cool that someone did yeah. that? Yeah, well, there were, so, you know, I would get the Guinness book every year and I would read through and I would, you know, bend the pages of like, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, I'm probably never going to be like the fattest man ever, um, but perhaps I would have a chance at setting record blank. So the two that I looked most seriously into, one, um, when I was in college, I looked into ravioli eating. I love eating ravioli. I don't even remember what the what the rules were for the category, but I remember uh, trying to woo a girl by telling her to come over and uh, help me practice for my for my Guinness attempt. How did that work out for you? Um, I would say I discovered a that I'm a very slow eater, and uh, b that um, you know. Uh, it's not necessarily the the best way to, to woo a lady. So competitive eating is its own world too. Like it, it is, it is, and that's I, I had no business doing that. So then the other one that I looked into, which I still am sort of fascinated by, was um, the longest uh, time riding on a roller coaster. Oh, interesting. I thought I'd pull in a charity, and there's I grew up in Canada, so there's a, a great uh, uh, 
amusement park near Toronto called Canada's, Canada's Wonderland. Wonderland. Yes. Oh, I've been there. They have oh, the Top man. Gun roller coaster. Yeah. I think we talked about it briefly in the roller coaster episode I, of this podcast. I uh, I have I, I have a crazy story from the Top Gun uh, roller coaster, if you want me to tell you. I definitely want to hear that it's story. It's a bit of a sidebar. So uh, you know that I'm a fairly tall guy. I'm six foot yeah, seven. That's why I was so surprised when you were talking about uh, the ravioli eating competition. <laughs> um, you're, so, you're, you're a tall, lanky man. Yeah, well, but I still like to eat. Yeah, you know? sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the summer that Top Gun opened, my brother Eli and I, we went to Canada's Wonderland specifically to ride Top Gun. And it's this uh, roller coaster for the listeners uh, where your legs dangle, right? Sure, an inverted roller coaster as there we heard we go. in that episode. There we go. So uh, we waited in line for an hour to ride Top Gun. And right before we got to the front of the line, I mean, it was a packed, packed summer day. Right before we got to the line, there was this sign that said, you must be this tall, or this short to ride Top Gun. So there were like these kids like who were like, you know, five feet who were just tall enough and were all excited. And then I went up and I stood next to the sign and I was about an inch too tall for Top Gun. And so I was I was livid. You know, we'd, we'd literally driven two hours from our hometown to go to Canada's Wonderland to ride Top Gun. There'd been no warnings that there were, there were height restrictions. So, you know, we went right away to the front office and, you know, we said, this is like horse crap. Um, we... Uh, we came just to ride Top Gun and, you know, nobody said that I was going to be too tall. So the apology that they gave us, they gave us this coupon. It was called a skip the line coupon. Oh. So basically it was a busy day. They said you can skip a line on any roller coaster in the amusement park and use the skip the line thing. So, you know, we, we were bummed out, but we took, took the pass and then we kind of sat for a second. And then I said, I was like, Eli, I understand that I shouldn't be doing this, but like, it's our destiny. We need to go ride Top Gun. So we went back to Top Gun. We snuck in the back, even though I was an inch too tall for it. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I still have one of those photos, you know, they take when you're going through, but it's like, I, it was, it was the scary. Are you like, do you have your head cocked to the side? I have, I used all these muscles to lift my knees oh, as high right, as right. I could. It's because it's inverted, so your feet are really where right. the problems Right, I thought my, be. I thought my toes were going to kick cement. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, it was, and will always be the scariest roller coaster. I have to life. assume there's like a bit of margin of error built in well, there. Where like, it's uh, right. not, you, if you're, if you're <laughs> one millimeter taller than this side, you will lose your feet. They gotta, they gotta cook something in there. <laughs> You would you would imagine so, but you know it's the first summer, and you hear of roller coaster park tragedy. So I I lived on the edge and and survived. So this is what's interesting about world records. I was I also love roller coasters, and <laughs> I feel like setting the record for most time on a roller coaster. Yeah, that's something I'm interested in. What is the record? Because I'm my guess is that it's something I could never even comprehend. It's days. It's days. days. Yeah. Whoa! I was I thought maybe an hour, two, three hours. No, they. I how mean, do, how does days work? How well, do you eat? well, so. Well, you can eat while you're riding on a roller coaster, I suppose. But uh, um, do you know what coaster it was? Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't set at Canada's Wonderland. It was set somewhere else. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, they they had. Um, uh, I think most Guinness records, like length based records, that there's general rules that you can have off five minutes per hour, and you can allow those to um, accumulate. So you could ride for three straight hours and then take a 15 minute break. Oh, I don't like that at all. Go, go to the bathroom. But uh, when I lived in Atlanta, I remember a roller coaster park. They uh, a radio station did a did a thing where they had 12 listeners start on a roller coaster, and the last one to stay on the roller coaster 
want a Jeep. <laughs> How long do they last? Well, so then it was whittling down and you're reading about it in the newspaper and they, they're having this contest. And finally it got to the point where there were three people left and they formed a pact with one another that they refused to get off the roller coaster. And, um, and then the park was opening, like they did this before the official opened. So finally the radio station was left with no option but to give all three of them Jeeps. It was like a great regional news story to follow. I feel like taking a break destroys the spirit of the contest a little bit because it's about how long can you stay on a roller coaster? Yeah. That's the question. If you start working in these little exemptions where you yeah. can earn breaks and those breaks pile up, that, that feels like it goes against the spirit of the contest. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear both sides. I mean, there is something magical about somebody who can claim they rode a roller coaster for a week. But, right, you right. Know, but, but, right, you have to go to the bathroom and do other things. But I, you know, I mean, with, with Record Setter, if you wanted to set like that category, for example, and you wanted to say breaks not permitted, you know, we allow people who are inventing new world records to create the rules again. Right, they we, set the criteria. Yeah, so if you want to say, all right, I'm going to set the time for the longest time to ride the roller coaster and screw... With no bullshit rules. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, that, that box is yours. So this is where you developed the interest for world records. When did you start to turn it into a business? Sure. Um, my professional background is in advertising. So I was a copywriter and creative director for a bunch of years and lived out in San Francisco. And when I was out there, I went out to, uh, the Burning Man Festival, which I'm sure you know about, but you know, it's this big annual festival. I do know about it, but I don't <laughs> like, I have an impression of what it is, but yeah. I, I don't know at all what it's like to actually be there. It's a, uh, it, 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 it's a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, uh, it's up to about 50,000 people now who gather for, basically a week in the Nevada desert. And it's a total experiment. Um, one of the big things is, it, is there's no commerce involved. So you go out, it the, becomes the third biggest town in the state of Nevada when it's at capacity. And everything is based around what they call the gift economy. So, you know, you're a comedian, you would find a stage and you would do comic performances. You know, somebody else... Like a traveling bard, I'd sing for my food. Well, that's the whole vibe of the place, and seriously. And then there are other people who are foodies, so they're going to, like, set up a huge kitchen and they're just going to, like, give people amazing food. And then there's going to be dance troops. And then artists who raise money and build extraordinary uh, installations in the desert. And, you know, everybody is just doing... Um, what they love. It's, you know, you find a creative outlet that works for you and, you know, they say no spectator. So you find a way to participate in the overall experience. Um, And yeah, and the result is, 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 is sort of a mashup of Mad Max and a rave and uh, what was the, what were the terms you just used? And and traveling bards. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So how did this, so, right. So I went for a couple of years and then, you know, my friends and I were like, come on, we've got to do something cool. And I said, why don't we create a camp, which is a world record camp? It's going to be the Burning Man world record camp. Um, and people will come up and have a chance to set their own world records. Um, and it was just a hobby. You know, it was just 20 of us looking for something fun to do. Somebody suggested in homage to Wide World of Sports that we all get yellow sports coats. So we wore those out. Um you know, when a guy comes up and he has an accordion and all right, I'll set a world record. Uh, so he set the world record for the fastest accordion rendition of the devil went down to Georgia. And then another woman comes along, she has a bowl of blueberries and a huge belly button. And so she sets the record for the most blueberries fit in a belly button. And it was just this endless parade of creative people performing all kinds of outrageous feats. Most balloon dogs twisted in a minute. Uh, most consecutive backflips on stilts. These were all things we were seeing and documenting at Burning Man in the mid, in the mid 
what was the last decade called? The mid-aughts? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what to call them. In the 2005 sure. era. And the project just kept growing as a hobby out there. Um, and it was awesome. You know, people seem to enjoy this creative uh, assignment of, wow, I can be the world's best at something and I can... In- and I can choose what that is. Yeah. And then there was a, you know, people would have a boost in self-esteem when we recognize them as a true world champion and we give them a patch and, you know, then we put up a leaderboard and people were coming back each year to look at the leaderboard and see if they still held their world record. So it was really, um, yeah, it was a very organic process. And how many years did you do that at Burning Man? Uh, five. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and so as it grew, um, this was when Wikipedia was changing our notion of what an encyclopedia was and, you know, tapping into the powers of the Internet and the collective potential of what people can do to make something much bigger. Crowdsourcing. Exactly. I used air Buzz, quotes. Buzzwords. Yeah. Buzzwords. Uh, very tech talk. Um, so I thought there was an opportunity to do something similar with world records. Why can't we build a platform that takes this you know, super fun project we're doing in the desert and put it on the internet and allow anyone anywhere to just say like, cool, I'm going to invent my own world records and and play along. So, um, I met my co-founder, Corey Henderson, who, you know, um, through his wife who I'd known from advertising. Um, we, we were at a Ratatat concert in San Francisco and, um, started sketching out the vision of how this project could go on the internet. And then, I moved back to New York in 2007, and we bootstrapped it for a couple of years while we were both working on other projects, and launched it at the end of 2008. And uh, yeah, now we're now we're a, a young company in New York City. And this is a recurring question I have to ask, and I, I've only recently recognized that I can hear my parents' influence on this podcast whenever <laughs> I ask it. Hi, mom. Is this your full time job? And you know my mom too, because uh, you did the we did yes. the record setter show exactly for this charity that my mom's involved yeah, in. Yeah, we raised some money for. Her. Um, anyway, yes. What my mom would want me to ask is: Is this your full time? Sure, job? sure. Uh, and you can also then ask the follow up question that people ask of: How do we make money? So I'll, the first question is: Yes, it's been my full time job for. Um, approaching three years now. Uh, we are fortunate to have a group of investors and um, are starting to make money as a as a young media company. And so we have uh, six full-time people on our team and then a bunch of interns and, and so forth. And the, the people on your team are like developers. They're not just like twisting balloon animals or like <laughs> eating the most jello. They're not, they're not there to break records. Right. You're reminding me of that ep- episode of The Simpsons where Bart goes to Mad Magazine sure. and he peeks in. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just a complete freak show. I interned at Mad Magazine uh, and DC Comics. They, they share an office. Yep. And when I tell people that, the first thing that always comes up, so I can only imagine what it's like if you actually work there. The first thing that always comes up is that it, that episode of yeah. uh, that episode of the Simpsons. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. So yeah, we have we have developers, we have a community manager, um, and uh, yeah, and our team is growing and business is growing. Submissions are you know, I mean, we have we have a, uh, over twelve thousand records now from more than sixty countries. So it's starting to internationalize slowly, and uh, yeah, it's it's exciting. As far as you know. Is this the only business that ever came out of a Burning Man setup? <laughs> um, it's a great question. I, I, I've heard, I talked to another tech entrepreneur who had started a company called Crackle, a video, sure, I know a Crackle. video site. Crackle's so I, owned by Sony now, right? Yes, exactly. So he, I think Crackle was, uh, he, he, yeah, there's, his backstory to that was that he had gone out with his friends to Burning Man, they had all shot videos, and they didn't have a place where they could go back and 
and have a you know private place to share their video. So so he that's a, a Burning Man born project. That's interesting. I didn't know the origin of Crackle, but that's not at all what Crackle is now, as I understand it. I'm not. Uh, I'm not totally in the know, but it's uh, they they had a big advertising campaign a while back where they were showing movies, yeah, and they had like Beverly Hills Nin- like I remember <laughs> I remember because Beverly Hills Ninja was in the ad. I was like, if that's the best movie, if that's how you're selling yeah. me on this, we've got movies, Beverly Hills Ninja. That's so funny. that seems like that has changed from its initial inception to something extremely unburning man like, whereas yeah. this is more or less what you guys came up with in the desert. Yeah, and, and right, and I, I do think that a lot of our culture and spirit and philosophy brings a lot of Burning Man values. Uh, participation being the biggest one, you know, if if the Guinness Book is something that you read and enjoy seeing what other people are doing, uh, Record Setter is a place where you can and should be uh, participating in it and not just, uh, not just being a bystander. Let's talk about the records. Because on the site, there is an editor's pick section. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you are one of the editors picking things that goes in there. In your mind, what are the qualities of a great record? What makes something worth uh, a record stand above others and make it worth featuring in that section? Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a mix of things. Uh, we, you know, high points are awarded if it's something that's super extraordinary. So, you know, um, most uh, one-armed push-ups in one minute while wearing a 40-pound backpack. That's that's just like straight up impressive. It's right. not creative to think of doing that necessarily as much as it is just to train your body and just like yeah. that's obviously something that person put a lot of work into. Right, exactly. Um, we, we're having we have a growing number of people who are into variations of push-ups. We have a guy who and also uh, planking. A guy who which is I guess you're just kind of not not sorry not like the comedy planking like there's a there's a exercise form of planking where Wait, so you do it's called like you do like a four finger plank and it's basically you get into the push-up position uh-huh. and you have to see how long you can put all your weight on your your fingers so this is not just like people like laying on a car and i think we have some of those car right. laying records but uh but, no, this this is, is, but you're talking about something else yeah so this is something Believe it or not, I didn't think about what we were talking about world records. Just pure physical endurance, yeah. and feats of strength. Oh yeah, yeah. So we we definitely, you know, we have such a broad range of people who send us records. So there are range from those types of things. So that would merit points to, of consideration. Um, production quality. You know, we definitely love to see when people take the time to produce and shoot, and and we're get, seeing more and more people who will take the time to put a t- add a timer to their video and put up some title cards and really give us a a, a stylish video and then just entertainment level right you know we want people to come to recordsetter.com every day and find just a funny or awesome video of somebody doing something really amazing so you know uh, what's a good example of one of those what's one, um, one of the more like just fun to watch ones? yeah i'm i'm a huge fan of the category of uh, most times smiling while listening to beat it <laughs> <laughs> how do you qual? how do you now how do you quantify a smile is it full like Cheeks up, cheeks down. Like the, we, the, I know there are rules associated with that. With that, but yeah, I think it says you know between between each smile, your mouth must come back to you know the home base. So home someone base someone position. did figure that out. Someone did define that. Yeah. Yep. What is the most impressive record, or is there a most impressive record you've seen on the site where you thought I couldn't believe someone did that? There are a few where I say that is not you know there are a lot of records that I say okay sometime when I have 
time to spare, I would like to practice and try and beat that record. Most times smiling while listening to beat it. I think I, I ha- would have a chance at getting involved. Yeah, you in. certainly have the tools but, anyway. It's not like the one arm push up one where I just can never do that. Exactly. So, right. So then we have, um, you know, most consecutive backflips on stilts I, is pretty awesome. Um, one that I really like is the. Um, What's the most consecutive backflips on stilts? Uh, it's 19, I think. That's a lot of black backflips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, one if that was I, one, I was going to go for it. <laughs> 19, I don't know if I can do. I will be your spotter if you go for it. Yeah. Um, uh, the fastest time, the fastest time to solve a two ball game of labyrinth, you know, that maze game where you have the mar- the mm-hmm. marble and you're rotating it. So he put down, um, he's a surgeon, which makes total sense because yeah. it's all about hand precision. Um, he, uh, put in two marbles and solved it in 25 seconds. So oh, that's a cool thing that for surgeons to do to, I don't know. Yeah. To, to practice no, we dexterity love that. Or we love like that. that part of the yeah. story. And, um, I, I, one of my favorite, I know you're, you're a big gamer. So one of my favorite gaming records is the, uh, fastest time to solve two Rubik's cubes while playing guitar hero. How do you do that? Uh, he would, I don't know. I mean, he, yeah, he would do this and then maybe, maybe when you get into like a solo, so you're like, and then you've got this hand pressed and you're pressing the notes and then he could, he was solving yeah, the Rubik's in, cube in rock with band, one I hand. think you can finger tap some of the solos. So maybe you could one hand, I don't yeah. know. You'd have to pick the right song with the right breaks. I'm, I'm going to check that one out. You had another video game one recently, which was. A very exciting one was the fastest Pac-Man time yeah. I saw on Record Setter. Right, fastest. fastest time for a per- game of perfect Pac-Man. Yeah, which Billy Mitchell from King of Kong sure. had initially set at um, a game of perfect Pac-Man is getting every dot, eating every ghost with every power pellet, and getting every fruit, vegetable, pretzel, whatever you, the, the little bonuses are. Yeah, you got to get all those. Through until the game kill screens, which yeah. I don't know, it's like an hour or two into it. You know, yeah. uh, I think it's around. I think his record is just uh, in the ballpark of two hours. So there, there is a theoretical maximum score you can get in Pac-Man. Billy Mitchell was the first person to get it, but this person, you know who it was? Um, uh, I'm uh, uh, Pace. I, I'm, for, I'm blanking on his name. It's not you're Mike Pace, Pac-Man. but it's close. You're thinking of Pac-Man. What? You think you just added an E to Pac-Man. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Anyway. It, I think it's Blinky. I think his name was Blinky. <laughs> it's on recordsetter.com, and this is now the fastest time to get that maximum score. So that's yeah. very exciting. Yeah, and and, 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 and and it's been thrilling because we're talking to a lot more people in the video gaming community and starting to see a lot more gaming records. Uh, on this past Friday night, actually, I tuned in and watched a guy on Ustream for a while, a guy named Paul Zimmerman who uh, set the record for the longest game of Space Invaders on an Atari 2600. Oh, my God. That's like the opposite of the one-arm push-up record. That's the polar opposite of it. Yeah, but but uh, I mean, not on on an impressive level. Like I would put it like on the same level. Like you know, it was fun. There was like a chat room and all these gamers that were hanging out. And uh, he turned the game over, I think, nine times and and lasted for just over two hours. How did he finally lose? Was he defeated, or did he just did his brain? I think because I know because the game turns over, I think it must be a matter of mental of mental concentration. Wow, impressive. Yeah. What is the most, or is there a most hotly contested record? Because I think, for me, the, the moment where I, I kind of understood Record Setter yeah. was uh, there was one that was most, I forget what it was exactly, you'll probably remember, it was most signatures on this picture of David Letterman, right? Yeah, yeah. Con- th- most, con- most, most names of country singers written on an image of David Letterman. Which sounds very silly, <laughs> but for whatever reason, this uh, went viral and it snowballed, and then you could see it was getting very competitive to yeah. fit more names on this picture of David Letterman. Yeah. 
And uh, th- this thing that seemed silly had been taken to this absolute maximum where yeah. you really did have to work very, very hard <laughs> to get another name of a country singer on there. Yeah, it's uh, right. And that that is half the fun. I, I think the, the about 30% of all records get beaten. And, and we can talk about your record. Sure. I mean, Je- Jeff, if if you don't know, has set uh, multiple world records I'm on a our multiple site. world record holder. And But the first one, I'll let you tell. Do you want to tell? The, Which was the I first one? I think Trivial Pursuit, wasn't it? Uh, maybe. I think I did one of one of the. I think I maybe did the whoopee cushion one first, which I got to mention. I'm in the bo- I'm in the record setter book yes. under legends, which I love that I'm under legends <laughs> for uh, sitting on the most whoopee cushions in 30 seconds without smiling or laughing, and that's one where I broke someone else's record. That was one that was originally on Fallon. Yeah. What's up with that? How'd you guys end up uh, with with Jimmy Fallon? Sure. I want to get back to this, but real quick. So I broke this record that you guys had, someone had set when you guys were on Jimmy Fallon's show. Yeah, so we've been on uh, on his show a a bunch of times. Um, We, um, even before we launched the site, uh, a friend of mine, Mike Hage, uh, said, you have to meet my buddy Jim. He is as big of a world record geek as you. And I told him that I have a friend working on this world record website and he's freaking out. So uh, we met this guy named Jim Javonin who um, had, yeah, I mean, is a world record geek like myself, had uh, done a documentary on a British world record setter, was working on a series of kids' books about world record setters. So um, kindred spirits. And then he went on to become a producer on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. So, um, you know, we do these monthly live events here in New York City, which are base variety shows of world records. You, Jeff, you know, because you've been involved. Sure. Um, and... Yeah, so Jim brought brought some producers, and they said this is going to be a really fun segment. So we've we've gone on a half a dozen times, and Fallon has set a bunch of world records, and we had, you know, Cameron Diaz set the record for the most uh, bunnies snuggled within a hammock, uh, oh, which got beaten by a guy in Australia. Um, How did Cameron take that? Uh, well, it was funny. She, they, so it was beat on a radio station in Perth, Australia. And then they somehow lined up a interview with her. She was promoting a new movie and they talked about the movie and it's a great audio clip. And then, and then they're like, and Cameron, we heard you set a, you know, a world record on Jimmy Fallon's television show. And she was super proud of her record. Like, you know, back, you know, backstage afterwards, she, we gave her a patch and she was glowing with excitement about this new world record. And then they're like, well, Cameron, we've got some bad news because, you know, our bloke here, you know, took down, I don't know how to do Australian accents, but um, took her down and beat her by two bunnies. And she just, you know, I mean, she she had a great spirit about it, but she basically said, like, this is not over. I'm going to reclaim this uh, record setter world record. So my second record, to get back to that, or one of the other ones I did, was I was at a bar. I'll I'll tell the story real quick. I was at a bar and they had Trivial Pursuit 90s (laughs) edition. And I don't like Trivial Pursuit very much. But we're doing the 90s edition, and one of the categories is, like, movies or entertainment or whatever it is. I think it's pink. And uh, we're going through them. And because I, I paid attention to movies and television basically every day for the <laughs> 90s, uh, there were th- I knew fully, like, two-thirds of them without having to think. So I decided when the next time one of these shows came up, because you've been on the College Chamber Live show a lot with uh, Record yep, Database. Yep. Or with Record Setter, I'm sorry. It used to be called Record Database. Uh, record Setter. So... I thought a fun one to do would be to break the Trivial Pursuit record. And to do that, and I didn't set out to do this, but I actually just memorized all the questions in the deck. Because <laughs> if you sit there, my stre- what I did was I, I, I took the deck and I just separated them into ones I immediately knew without thinking and ones I didn't know. And then I just drilled the ones I didn't know. And it didn't take 
it took a few hours for me to learn every single question. This, yeah, this is the, the the guru and genius of Mr. Jeff Rubin right here. This so is Eventually, I got every question in the Trivial Pursuit 90s deck. Anyway, here's a clip of me setting the record. Go. What's the name of the X-Files agent Mulder's uh, sister who is Samantha? Uh, who landed roles in Hairspray and Airplane 2, the sequel yes. to Bono. Uh, which um, character in the Larry yes. Sanders show filled his newsletter with gems and like Hayat? Uh, what yes. role did Courtney Cox originally try out for on Rachel. What actor would lips, yes. uh, lock lips with Larry King to close? Marlon Brando. Uh, what star yes. on my own private Idaho did Michael Stipe dedicate our So I did that, and it was fun, and uh, I, I was pleased with myself. And, but then, and I had a, unlike the Whoopi Cushion one, those records were my idea and I established but then someone online beat me in, I think, the technology. I can't remember if they beat me in entertainment or technology. I eventually did both entertainment and technology. Yeah, yeah. And someone beat me. And it was bittersweet, I'd yeah. say. It was sad to be beaten, but I was re- it, it was very it's a, exciting. It's a surreal feeling. Yeah, it was very exciting because yeah. no one had ever done this before. And I was like, I'll just do this and establish it. And then yeah. someone beat that record. And yeah. It was fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I always say when I – all of my records, I guess because I run the company, but I've set a dozen records and they've all been beaten – um, and what are some it, of your records? Well, when it happens, I'll, I'll answer that one second. I mean, when it happens, it feels like somebody's covering your song. You know, you've taken oh, the okay, time to think it, yeah. of this creative performance, and all of a sudden, you're seeing some random person on the internet covering your song. So, um, the first record I set, which was at Burning Man, was the most times whistling "Happy Birthday" in one minute. Okay. Um, and then that got beaten by some teenage jerk in uh, in California. Um, I've set records for the uh, most bananas fit in a pair of pants while wearing them. I was particularly proud of and and thought I was like, peep, that's a hard record to beat. Because, you need a lot of bananas. Well, and you need to have long legs. And again, I'm <laughs> six foot seven, so it, I thought it was a perfect record. But that's been beaten a few times, uh, and and launched new categories like most toy cars fit in a pair of pants while wearing them. I think there's like most wrenches fit in a pair of pants while wearing them. Most potatoes fit in a pair of pants. So that sparked some other categories. Um, I have I used to have the longest pronunciation of Aflac. Um, but that got beaten. How, how long was your pronunciation? Um, probably over 30 seconds. Is there, I had the longest hand coup, which is the, is, is there a most exciting record you've ever seen where you couldn't believe it was going to, you didn't think it was going to get finished and then someone just nailed it? Uh, one of my favorite, uh, records in that category is a guy was set by a guy named Chad Lunders who lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. He set this at a juggling festival and he set the record for, you know what a roll of bola is? It's like sort of like a one person seesaw balance board. Mm-hmm. Um, like a, it's got like a, a semicircle bottom, right? Uh, there's like, there's like a, 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 um, a cylinder and it's just a, it's just a, piece of wood on top of a cylinder and you just oh, have okay, to balance sure. on it. So he set the record for the uh, fastest to be or not to be soliloquy while balancing on a rollabola on top of a picnic table and juggling knives. Wow. It's awesome. And that was that was a video yeah. that someone sent in. Because you guys also do these live shows, which sure. as you mentioned I participated in. What are the live shows about? Yeah, so um, they're really just an evolution of what we did at Burning Man every year. Um, they're hosted by myself and Corey, my co-founder. We're dressed up in yellow. We have a house band, and we assemble a lineup of about a dozen 
people to come on stage and set world records. So it's a true variety show. And we'll have everybody from, you know, New York comedians and musicians. You know, we had Andrew W.K. just set a record for the most times uh, singing the word party in a song it was pretty awesome. He already had the record. He upped, his, he upped the bar. <laughs> it, it was. A, yes, exactly. Um, and then, you know, a guy who came in from from uh, Jersey and set the record for the fastest time to name every episode uh, of Star Trek TV episode of Star Trek in chronological order. Um, we have this Sean McDaniel who's a push-up champion from Queens. Yeah, we, 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 we work hard to make it the shows as eclectic as possible. Yeah, I think that's what's fun about them is uh, you never know what you're going to get. And if you don't like what's on the stage, just give it like 80 seconds and, yeah. you're, and you're on to the next thing. And yeah. I remember <laughs> when I did the one in L.A., which was part of your book release yeah. uh, tour, and I thought there was a really fun one towards the end where someone brought in their dog and the crowd collectively, because the crowd set a record yeah. for uh, most, I think it was most times hugging a dog in a, a minute. Beagle. A beagle. Was, yeah, most, Specifically a most beagle. people to hug a beagle in a minute. And so we all lined up and took turns hugging the dog. And it was like, <laughs> a very, a re, I feel like most comedy shows should have a break where the audience gets up and yeah. goes and hugs a dog. Yeah. We, we, and yeah, we, you know, again, I mean, the participatory element of what we're building is, is a huge component of it. So we love when people come and we've done, you know, we did the largest game of I never at one of our events here, which was a fun group record. Um, one of my favorites, uh, set by Kurt Brownholer, uh, local comedian. I'm sure, you know, he said he led the room in setting a record for the largest meow rendition of lean on me. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. It was a good one. Yeah. Now you guys also have a book out, which I am currently holding, which no one can see. But uh, the record sec, the record setter book of world records. What was putting the book together like? Uh, it was uh, it was a ton of fun. Yeah, I mean, so so the book is um, a collection of about three hundred of of our favorite records from the website. Um, but that you know the the pages go into a lot more depth than just telling the stories. There are tips if you want to beat the world records. There are hundreds of what we call records begging to be set which are these unclaimed categories. So, you know, we really worked hard to make a book that um, both told the amazing stories of all the record setter world records, but also uh, served as a guide to inspire people to, to set records. But, it, but, but I mean, the book was, I mean, it had a lot of interesting challenges because most of our content is on video and our publisher wanted the highest resolution images it's possible. It's a good looking book when you flip through it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, we worked really hard on it. Um, but yeah, we had to, you know, reach out to a lot of the record setters again to get their stories and to just get photos um, photos to go along with with which each with each one of the records and and jeff's in it so uh if, you, if you're a fan just of jeff rubin jeff rubin or, i'm sorry it's under visionaries just go <laughs> to the visionary section thumb through it that that was a mistake i have no clue how jeff rubin ended up in the visionaries uh you, you and Corey kind of make yourself characters in the book because you guys have these very distinct yellow jackets when you officiate the events and uh, throughout the book, there's Yellow Jacket comments, and there's Dan and Corey, and you guys have uh, comments on these. Was that a deliberate decision? Uh, yeah, we, we just thought it would be fun as two world record geeks to kind of uh, be the guides through the book and just have an opportunity to be... Um, people say we're kind of like um, the, the guys in the Muppets, uh, Statler and Wal- uh, Waldorf. Yeah, yeah. So we are just kind of the peanut gallery uh, chipping in with some insights and some, and some jokes. And uh, we are going to give people a chance to win this book yeah. right now. I don't think we've ever done it. I'm positive we've never done anything like this on this show. I'm going to set a world record right now. This episode right now. sponsored by recordsetter.com. I'm going I'm to set a world record. We've talked about this before we started recording. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do most Super Nintendo games named in 60 seconds. 
Great. I have not prepared for this outside of wasting my entire childhood. So uh, I'm confident someone will be able to beat this with even the most minimal amount of, uh, of preparation. Uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to do this, just kind of firing off the top. This is a great look inside like my, my conscious, what's, what's just bumping around there all the time. Uh, let's, let's set up some ground rules. Super sure. Nintendo games. Yep. Uh, 60 seconds. Do I think you can't read that? This is this is about knowing the games. It's not about right. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to read off of a list. Right. Yep. Uh, are there, are there, is there anything else we should set up? Uh, I think that's fair. In fact, why don't we use your phone so I can shoot video of you sure. with one of these, and then uh, if I'll you t- set the timer up in there, and then I'll shoot video on my phone. Okay. Great. And uh, yeah, I would say that you must name full titles. I would say you can't just say Mario, Mario Two, Mario Three, but you have to name the, the full f- title exactly. Right. Which I did for another record. I did at the LA show. I did most Mario game titles named. No, it was fastest time to name 40 Mario titles <laughs> while beating the first level of Mario 3D, which had just come out. And I had spent like I did an awful travel day playing like nine straight hours of. And so it was a simultaneous <laughs> okay. record where I was both naming the games while playing the level. This is just about naming the games. Yeah, yeah. And not just Mario games, any game. So we'll get this up on recordsetter.com. I'm going to put this interview up on Tuesday. We can get this up on recordsetter.com before then. Yep. So this will be up on recordsetter.com. Go, don't, don't tell me about it. I'll be looking, but don't, don't submit these to me. Go to recordsetter.com. Find it. I don't know how you find yeah, it. You'll just search. type in Jeff Rubin or Mario Brothers, and you'll find it. You'll find it. Maybe and, it'll be an editor's pick. And uh, try to you can try to beat my record, which I'm going to set now. Okay, 60 seconds. Every As many Super Nintendo games as I can. Oh, my God. I'm already blanking on them. When you say go, I'll go. Okay, here we go. Je- here's Jeff Rubin, the uh, most Super Mario Brothers named. No, in but s- most Super Nintendo games named. Okay. Uh, Jeff <laughs> On your marks, get set, go. Super Mario World, Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island, A Link to the Past, Super Metroid, Castlevania 4, F-Zero. Oh, no, now I'm blanking. Uh, Bomberman, Final Fantasy 3, fi- uh, Final Fantasy... Tac- nope. Uh, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. Uh, oh, my God, this is so hard. Uh, Clay Fighter, <laughs> Clay Fighter 2, Judgment Clay. Uh, Street Fighter 2, Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat 2. Uh, what a- Pilot Wings. Oh my, this is much harder than it 30 looks. 30 seconds. Uh, I just gotta think of a genre. Oh, um, NHL Stanley Cup, NHL 94, 95, Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball. Uh, <laughs> the, the ones that are coming to my head. Lester's Unlikely Adventure. Uh, 10 more seconds. Oh my god. Mario Kart. Uh, Kirby's Dream Course, a terrific time. Game. That was so bad. I think with even a modicum of preparation, I could have done twice that. But that is where the bar is set. What, what, what was it? Were you counting? I, I, I mean, we're gonna have to. We're, we're gonna we'll, have to look we'll at the video to, again. We'll go but, to the but video. I would, but I would say, going back to the original rules we discussed, I think NHL ninety four ninety five is not. Yeah, the that full was. Name, I knew right? that was a reach when I was. I, was and I wasn't feeling, even sure what years of NHL games came out on Super Nintendo. I didn't, yeah. it, was, it was. It was. Uh, but 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 you know there. I are, wish I could make a stipulation that you have to do it with zero preparation at all. You have to just be thrown into it. Yeah, but but you know the you know Corey, my co-founder always talks likes to imagine the origin of pole vault right Mm -hmm. and it probably began with a couple of buddies who found a big stick and uh, there was a shrub and they said okay can we pull you know 
throw the stick in the ground and throw ourselves over that tiny shrub and then the next shrub and then the next shrub and it's evolved into this world-class sport. So um, what I'm saying is like, you know, what you've done is you're innovating, you're creating brand new world record categories. And the fact that the record you've set, that the bar is really low, that's not that big a deal. Hopefully what this will do is inspire more and more gamers to say, that's a really interesting competitive category that jeff rubin created and let's you know try and push each other and raise the bar for for nintendo historians you're doing a really good job of making me feel better like i was like oh my god that was so embarrassing you were like no this is a milestone performance you changed the history of games uh and it, it does make me feel better i think i think you're a little bit right so you guys have the book out now. You got yeah, the website. Yeah, that was pretty lame. That was I mean, terrible. That was, yeah, I, I, I knew I, I knew I was gonna do it, but I didn't prepare. <laughs> yeah, it's a Sunday, you know. It's yeah. We're, we're taking it easy today. Yeah. Uh, you guys have the book out now. You've got the website. What else is? What's next for a record setter? Yeah. So um, you know, we're we're really just focusing on improving our product and and making the website first and foremost a lot better. Um, we are. Um, we definitely feel that there's a great opportunity to extend into television so we're exploring some opportunities in that area right now um you know working more with with brands and and doing um some really fun live events uh with different brands and uh yeah we're just uh you know we we say that recordsetter.com is the new home of world records and we're just following that mission and and doing what we can to make that come to life so recordsetter.com the book, the record setter book of world records, available in local bookstores and online. Or you can try to get it by beating my record. Or we, we're not, we can't just give it to the first person to beat the record. Maybe we should say the person who's done the most after like a week. Uh, sure, that's what fine. Think, what do you think about yeah, that? What, so why don't we say at the end, whoever holds that world record at the end of January will receive okay. a free copy of the record setter book of world records. I like that. I was about to get into dates. By the end of January, whoever holds that record, maybe it'll still be me. Maybe I'll up it, get a second copy. Exactly. Uh, we'll get a copy of the book. Dan, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us. Uh, thanks for having me. And don't stop listening yet because I'm actually going to throw in a, a follow-up. It, usually this is where people would stop listening to the show. But I'm going to throw in a quick follow-up to last week's episode uh, right about now. Thanks again, Dan. With pleasure. Last week on the show, we spent over an hour talking about all of the movies coming out in 2012, and when you spend that much time talking, you're going to make some mistakes, and even if you spend that much time talking, you're going to leave some things out, and shortly after I posted the episode, my friend Rami Raff, who I know through Amir, posted a seven-point comment on my blog, kind of filling in some of our gaps of knowledge, he made some great points, so I wanted to go through... Those seven points. So please welcome to the show, Rami Raff. Thanks for being here, Rami. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. So let's start. Number one, you wrote, why Loki is the Avengers villain. This is something we had talked about, uh, why that? Why the Thor villain gets to be the villain for the Avengers movie, of all of the villains that they've all faced. I believe Pat asked, why not Obadiah Stone? Right. You wrote... In addition to being a god and therefore capable of taking over a whole super taking on a whole super team, Loki was also the first villain to ever battle the Avengers way back in Avengers 1. It is Loki's trickery that accidentally brings the team together. Yeah, that's true. Uh, way back in Avengers number one, uh, Lo- Loki's kind of messing around with Thor, and he spies the Hulk, and so he starts kind of doing stuff to the Hulk, and then he's like, oh, there's Iron Man, and I'll mess with Iron Man, because apparently he thinks this is a really good idea, and by some fluke, all these heroes come together, and they're able to defeat him. Are the Avengers we're going to see in the movie the original Avengers lineup? 
Not quite. It's a slightly modified team, and I think it's to the filmmakers' credit that they're going with some more recognizable names because I don't know what the box office draw for like Ant Man and the Wasp is. Um, but to have you know Captain America and Iron Man and Thor and the Hulk and like kind of recognizable names that like they pass the grandma test. Like it's like my grandmother knows who Iron Man is or she's heard of him or Captain America, and so that that is a popular kind of permutation of the team, but it is not. Uh, it does not reflect the original 1960s Marvel Comics team. You know, I think when we were recording, I was thinking about who did the Avengers originally fight, and I think that I thought of Starro, that big uh, star-shaped villain. But now that we're talking, I realize I was thinking about who the Justice League originally fought. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the giant starfish. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's it's very funny to be in this position, Jeff, because I, you know. I'm sure everyone loves people on uh, message boards and uh, and comment sections that go. Um, actually, you forgot da 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 da, and uh, that's that's really what this is uh, writ large. But you were so. totally correct, and yeah. and you were not the only person uh, to point this out. And I can't be mad about it. I don't think anyone would be mad about <laughs> it if you're you're helping and you're contributing to the conversation. So let's move on to number two. Sure. We had uh, Ben, who was also on the show last week. Uh, ben Rogers asked yep. if they were going to get Jarvis, the Avengers butler, and I kind of hinted at this, but I wasn't sure enough to actually come out and state it. You wrote uh, that pr- they, Jarvis will probably not be in the movie, as the Iron Man movies has already established that Jarvis, who is the Avengers and Tony Stark's butler, in the cinematic Marvel Universe, is an AI program designed by Tony Stark and voiced by Paul Bettany. And uh, rather, they will continue with that continuity and just have robot Jarvis as opposed to butler Jarvis. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a little awkward uh, in this day and age to see the full proper butler unless you're uh, unless you're Bruce Wayne. Or watching Downton Abbey. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Number three, you wrote, S.H.I.E.L.D. Agent Coulson is played by Clark Gregg, not Greg Clark. We called him Greg Clark. Uh, I addressed the issue in the pictures of the enhanced version of the show. I think uh. everyone can understand the mistake there. Greg Clark, Clark Gregg. Uh, yeah. Not not a lot to say about that one. Sorry, no. Mr. Clark. <laughs> uh, next one, which I'm now realizing you also labeled number three, which means this was an eight-point post because you have two <laughs> number threes. So in yeah. the John Carter discussion, we mentioned that John Carter is Hawkeye's name. I assume you meant Hawkman, who is actually Carter Hall. That is correct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my mistake. Sorry, everyone, on that one. Number four, which is actually number five, kind of – this is not really a correction, but a, a very interesting piece of trivia. I didn't know. For yeah. Django Unchained, which is Quentin Tarantino's movie coming out, which I guess is there is being pitched at least as Inglorious Bastards plus Slavery, the title <laughs> character Django, uh, who is being played by Jamie Foxx, you say was uh, originally consider he originally considered Will Smith and Idris Elba. Yeah, actually, I think there was reports online at places like Slash Film and Ain't It Cool saying that Idris Elba was actively campaigning for the role of Django because uh, it was obviously, I mean, who wouldn't want to be the lead in a Quentin Tarantino movie? And Will Smith was also looking at the part, but I think was worried that it would be kind of just right of the amount of controversy that he'd ever want to court in a film role. Idris Elba, though, who played Stringer on The Wire is really exciting, yeah. if only because it makes me think that Quentin Tarantino has watched The Wire, and I would love to hear Quentin Tarantino talking about The Wire. Oh, my God. Well, Quentin Tarantino is is full of really interesting kind of out-there opinions. I don't know if you saw this, Jeff. The other day, uh, and hopefully maybe you can link it on, on the Tumblr, uh, Quentin Tarantino released his top ten picks of uh, movies in 2011, and there was some weird stuff on it. Oh, what like, was on it? Like the Three Musketeers movie, he put at number ten that came out this year. Oh, weird. 
yeah. And he, he I just can't of, believe he saw that. Like, I, I forgot that came out. Yeah, he, it's like, it was, it's not, it's definitely does not look like a, like a, what you'd see in like the New York Times or Rolling Stone for their top 10 of the year. It was like, he said Drive was a, like, a nice try, but it didn't make his list. Uh, he liked Rise of the Planet of the Apes a lot. I love Rise he of the Apes. He liked, yeah. uh, it was just, it was just, it was, I think he liked Attack the Block, but I don't know, uh, and which makes sense. Uh, but it was um, it was surprising. I think uh, you and the, and the fans should definitely take a look at that. I don't know, uh, you know, with Miyamoto, it'd be interesting to look at that list and try to figure out where Quentin Tarantino is going. Like, there's apparently I've read once in an article that Miyamoto's competitors, Miyamoto being the guy who works at Nintendo, created Mario and Zelda sure. and Envision the Wii and all that. His competitors, like, study his life because apparently he got into dogs and then he developed Nintendo dogs. And, like, they try to read what his hobbies are to try to see where he's going. And I wonder if you could do that with Tarantino and look at his favorite movies and try to figure out, you know, which of those he'll incorporate into his next movies. Moving on the, down the list, uh, number five, the untitled Paul Thomas Anderson movie actually does have a title for now, and it is The Master. I was vaguely aware of that, but they seem to be going back and forth so much on that, and I don't, I, I don't know, I don't really want to... S- I, I can't keep track of what they're calling it this day. I think the thing that, that kind of guided me on, on putting it down, because I've also seen them going back and forth, is that Paul Thomas Anderson, who surprisingly is actually on Twitter, commented the other day that the master will be shot in 65 millimeter film. I don't know what that means. Uh, depending on what size you want your print, like, like you know how in, um, for example, there are certain scenes in The Dark Knight that are that Chris Nolan shot in IMAX, so they're a lot wider. Like the high scene, or in that six-minute prologue in front of Mission Impossible, how the screen looks really, really wide. Yeah, yeah. This is the same. It's the same idea. It's that we, now that a lot of filmmakers have moved to digital, we don't often care about the size of the film because you can theoretically blow it up. But if you're using 65 millimeter, it's a really specific, incredibly wide screen shot. So it's that kind of epic feel of like a Lawrence of Arabia or something where literally you're 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 engulfed in the image where it's so kind of big and so wide and so epic and you really need you need a, a truly a uh, a master director to be using that kind of frame to really make a captivating image just because there's so much space and obviously a guy like Paul Thomas Anderson I think is certainly talented enough to pull it off. Your next point is the one I think I'm most excited to talk about. I thought this was a great point and not just something we got wrong, but something you add to the conversation. Yeah. You wrote uh, that we had mentioned that John Carter is looking to borrow its aesthetic from a number of pre-existing franchises, such as Avatar. But then you write, but in fact, the John Carter series is probably the most borrowed from in all of sci-fi. Star Wars, Avatar, and many other movies have borrowed plot points, set pieces, and aesthetics from the book series, which has been around since 1917. That's a great point. Yeah, uh, uh, John uh, Rice Burroughs, sorry, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who created the Tarzan stories, also is responsible for creating uh, John Carter of Mars. And it's like this massive book series about this Confederate soldier who's kind of warped to, uh, for lack of a better term, if we're talking about Miyamoto, uh, to Mars. And he kind of, you know, love, falls in love with their women and allies himself with their native species. And, and it, of course, describing it now, it sounds a little bit like Avatar. But in fact, Avatar is the one who's kind of borrowing that plot. And you go in the preview and you see him fighting in the arena and it's like, oh, that's like in the Star Wars prequels. But all that stuff is taken. Like guys like George Lucas and James Cameron grew up uh, reading the, the John Carter books. I have to admit, I knew there was a history behind it, but I'm a little ignorant of it. I knew that it had been borrowed from, but I did not think about that when we were talking about it. Have you actually read any of the John Carter books? 
I've skimmed I've skimmed through them. They're actually I think they're on public domain. So if you go on to like um, I like can hear iBook, you typing. Yeah, if you go on <laughs> go on iBooks, I think you can find at least a couple of different volumes. And if you go to like Amazon, they sell it for like here's like the first five books in like a ten dollar package because it's you know uh, there's. Um, but you I don't. Know, I don't think, and I don't think you think that yeah. these things are ripping each other off per se. They're all just influencing no, each no, other, no. and it, it, it's uh, it's cool to see uh, the John Carter books, which influence all these other things. I mean, obviously, the John Carter movie aesthetic is borrowed from these other things too. So it's cool to see them all. You know that it's not yeah, just a straight line. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of looping in on itself. I'm. I'm. I'm really hopeful for that one. Some of. Uh, some of the best people on TV are in that movie. You've got, um, you know, obviously you talked about Rick, yeah. but also yeah, exactly. I don't call I don't call him Taylor Kitsch either. Um, and also, um, uh, Walter White is in that movie. No, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian Cranston yeah, is a, is a Confederate soldier. I think early in the film. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sold. They should put that in the previews. Yeah, seriously. Give me Cranston. That's a ticket. That's a ticket buy right there. Uh, your final point addressed a question that we had about. I can't. I'm like, of course, we were discussing whether the X Men movies could cross over with the Avenger movies, and you wrote that the X Men franchise cannot legally interact with the Marvel movies, Avengers, Iron Man, etc., because Fox owns the movie rights to the characters, despite Marvel create, having created them. Same goes for Sony and Spider Man. Yeah. So early in the 90s when Marvel was trying to get its characters off the ground and into theaters, um, they sold their rights to the characters to different studios. So what, as a result, you have kind of a fractured Marvel universe on screen where only certain studios have the rights to certain characters. So you legally, even though Marvel technically created and owned all these characters, you can't put Wolverine in an X-Men movie. You, oh, sorry, you can't put Wolverine in an Avengers movie. You can't put Spider-Man with, like, the Fantastic Four because they all go into different – they're all owned by different studios. Uh, I'm glad the Fantastic Four can't cross over with the rest of them. They actually, There's actually been some traction on a uh, Fantastic Four reboot the other day. They said that um, the guy who's directing this upcoming found footage super movie, superhero movie called Chronicle – you may have seen a preview for this. I have not. So it's like basically it's like a found footage kind of movie, like a Cloverfield or a Blair Witch Project, except it's about three teens who get superpowers and start to uh, abuse those powers. Um, and this guy, apparently Fox really likes him. I think his name is uh, – see, now I'm going to get the name wrong. It's I think John Frank or something like that. Um, and he – Fox wants to put him in charge of uh, the Fantastic Four reboot. Uh, because they're not happy, and rightly so, with the original Fantastic Four movies, uh, and also because they need to they need to kind of reboot the Fantastic Four movies because if they don't make a movie for it, they lose the license, and Fox doesn't want to be in a position where Marvel's making money that they could be making. Right. That happened once before with the Fantastic Four, where that Roger Corman movie yes, was, yes, yeah, was um, made because someone was going to lose the rights if they just didn't make a movie. Yeah. That's yeah. usually the best way to start creating something. Oh, I, yeah. I have two other mistakes from last week to own up to. One, straight up <laughs> mistake. I, I'm wondering if you knew this. We talked yeah. about how Liam Helmsworth was in The Expendables 2 and whether yeah. he deserved a spot on the cast. Turns out that is not the Helmsworth that is in The Expendables 2. It is his brother, Chris Helmsworth, I think. Chris, let me verify wait, that's correct. No, hold on. Wait, wait. Chris is the one who's Thor. Liam is the other one. That's correct. We assumed yeah. Chris Helmsworth, the, we assumed the Helmsworth from Thor was yes. the Helmsworth in The Expendables 2. It turns out that is 
Let's start out. Chris from Thor's brother, Liam, is the Helmsworth in Expendables 2. So Thor uh-huh. is not in the Expendables 2. It's his brother, Liam, who is in the Hunger Games. And I only know this because I have his IMDb page open right now. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's in... I lied. It's loading. Uh, <laughs> knowing. that, Which I like that movie. That Nicolas Cage movie, Knowing. Uh-huh, sure. That movie's yeah. just the right amount of bad. Anyway, we got the wrong Hemsworth. Not even Helmsworth. We got the wrong Hemsworth in the Expendables 2. Did you even know that? I thought that was a little mis... I thought there was no way... I didn't even feel bad for getting that wrong. There was no way I could have known that. Yeah, I don't I don't think uh, the Hemsworth family has penetrated the public consciousness enough where everyone knows exactly uh, who is who. I don't, I, don't, I don't fault you for that one. Particularly yeah. because, one, they look similar, and yes. two, the Expendables true trailer, it just gives you the last names because there's so many iconic people in the movie. You know, it's like Statham, Lee, Lundgren... Hemsworth and expects me to know the difference between the two. <laughs> so I'm not apologizing for that one. Yeah. Uh, Sylvester Stallone is nothing if not presumptuous. <laughs> I, I, I like Liam, I like Chris Hemsworth a lot in Thor, and uh, maybe Liam's good too. I'm not, nothing against him. He might be great in the Expendables too. I just question, I just thought the Expendables was supposed to be Legends, and I'm not sure he, he fits up there. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. The last thing, a mistake... Uh, I got this comment so much over the week over Twitter and uh, on uh, Facebook. Just people kept pointing out that we left out Prometheus when we were going yes, through all the movies. Yes. And uh, I kind of feel bad about that because I'm always complaining that there's too many franchises and there's too many sequels. And then I get a chance to pick whatever movies I want to spotlight. And all I do is like Battleship and G.I. Joe. And I leave out one of the more original uh, movies coming out next year. I say one of the more, not totally 100%, because it's apparently related to the Alien universe, but Ridley Scott's Prometheus movie. What do you think, Rami? Um, I'm pretty excited. I think, I mean, you look at Ridley Scott, here's a guy responsible for two of the, you know, without question, greatest original, not a, well, not wholly original, sci-fi movies of all time, Alien and Blade Runner, and the fact that he's returning to the genre is really exciting. The cast looks really good. That first preview looks really cool, and they're kind of aping the original style of the Alien trailer. It's it, it's a very and they've really kept it on lockdown about plot details other than the fact that it's like you said tangentially related to the first Alien movie. I get the uh, sense that they were like Ridley Scott's was like I want to make a sci-fi movie and they were like I don't know and he was like oh no no it's in, it's in the same universe as Alien and they were like oh that sounds great. Yeah. They're like, Robin Hood what? I mean, of course, Ridley, whatever you like. Prometheus, I apologize for leaving it out because I'm very excited to see it. And they, obviously, based on all the feedback I got, a lot of other people are excited to see it, too. Definitely. Jeff, could I uh, sneak in two, I think, 2012 releases that I think are worth mentioning that might be a little under the radar? Let's do it. Okay, so the first one I think that might really interest fans of this podcast is one called Cabin in the Woods. Oh, you is- sure? I, I just yeah. saw Joss Whedon's name, and I was like, sold. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's written, like you said, by Joss Whedon and directed by Drew Goodard, who did uh, Cloverfield. And it's a kind of a spin on the uh, teens going to a cabin in the woods and then terrible things happening to them, um, but with a twist. And even the poster kind of reflects this because it's like this like Rubik's Cube of a cabin. Um, I would actually recommend, if you have not seen the preview for this movie yet, I'd say avoid it because I think the preview gives away – one of the cool twists that are coming in this movie. They've actually screened this at some festivals and it's been on the shelves for a while because 
um, MGM was going to release it, and then they went out of business, and so now it's being released by another company. But I think it's supposed to be great and really exciting. And have, you know, original horror film always w- worth uh, being on the lookout. Totally. And then, you know, who's in that that I, I like a Joss Whedon player that I like a lot is yes. I forget his name. He's got a weird name, like Fran something. He was Fran Franz from uh, Dollhouse. Yeah, yeah. He was he was kind of the Xander character of Dollhouse, and he was great yeah, yeah, yeah. on that show, even when that show was not very good. Totally. Uh, and then the other one is, the preview just came out for this the other day, is uh, Moonrise Kingdom by Wes Anderson. Oh, yeah, I uh, saw that trailer. Which, uh, which I don't know if you're a Wes Anderson fan. I know he doesn't rub everyone the right way, but it's got an incredible cast, and it looks, uh, you know, if, you, if you're into Wes Anderson, this is his most Wes Anderson-y movie yet. Yeah, you know, I watched that trailer, and I was like, I thought that there are so many Wes Anderson imitators. He's been imitated so, so much since Rushmore came out over a decade ago. But, you know, there's nothing like the original. When you see a Wes Anderson movie, you're like, that is, that is the genuine article. Yeah, no doubt. It, he really has that specific look down, and uh, I, it looks pretty good. Yeah, could be cool. Rami, uh, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to fill in the gaps and now have what I hope is a comprehensive look at the upcoming movies of 2012. Well, Jeff, it's been great talking to you, and uh, I can't wait for 2012 and, uh, and all the great movies that are coming out. Is there anything we can plug, Rami? Um, I guess you can follow me on Twitter at the sickness eighty three, um, and also I'm a fairly infrequent contributor to geek uh, to Geekscape, uh, the website Geekscape, uh, worth checking out. And then uh, you can find me on Tumblr at um, stately Xanadu. That's x a n a d u dot tumblr dot com. And I'll link to all that when I post uh, when I post this episode on my Tumblr, which I'll tell you all about in a minute. Thanks so much for doing this, Rami. Good talking to you. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Have a good one. Keep it going for Rami Raff. Thank you, Rami. Thank you again to Dan from RecordSetter.com. That is it for this week's Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show, but new episodes every Tuesday morning, and I will remind you when they're out if you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Rubin Show, on Tumblr at JeffRubinJeffRubin.com, at my Facebook fan page, or on YouTube.com slash Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.